Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. I'm going to ask our um, audience, audiences that are off-site to turn off their mics, because I think we still have someone maybe with a mic on that's giving us a little noise here. They're off. So this noise, this is the, um, <laughs> the harm of a new conference room. Uh, so we, this, this buzz is okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, we're good. Um, I'm glad you all uh, made it to the conference here in this new room, which is beautiful. And I, and I think we may be the inaugural conference. Um, I'm sure we'll make much more use of this over time. Um, I am uh, very happy to uh, introduce the, um, to introduce Elizabeth Talbot, who will tell us about our speaker for today. Elizabeth's an associate professor of medicine in the section of infectious disease and international health. Uh, she's the deputy state epidemiologist for New Hampshire, and she's DHMC's associate medical director for infection prevention and control. She has many other um, leadership positions, both regionally and globally, um, and very happy to have her today. Thank you. Um, thanks. I um, am pleased to be able to announce uh, Hillary Kremer joining us this morning. Um, so Hillary gave up a professional basketball career to move into emergency medicine, um, and, and we're grateful for that. She uh, is an assist assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and the School of Public Health as well. She has been um, many firsts, the first director of disaster response at the Center of Global Health at Mass General, and the first director of education at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. She founded and directed the Humanitarian Studies Initiative and Global Women's Health Fellowship um, and is responsible for training um, any hundreds of uh, effective humanitarian response workers. Um, she has been um, effectively responding to many of the recent disasters. She's, she's been to the Haiti earthquake response. You'll see slides of that. Um, she'll speak about her experiences through the Philippines typhoon, um, the tsunami, uh, the Nepal earthquake more recently. Um, and she has been the technical advisor on Ebola for the International Medical Corps, which is where our paths crossed. Um, and I assure you that there is nobody you want on the other end of that phone call when you're abroad in an um, emergency. So in my own life, I'll be very grateful for, for Hillary's role in support of that um, disaster. So um, I look forward to the talk today, and I know it's relevant as uh, the need for uh, humanitarian response workers increases. So thank you for joining and welcoming Hillary. Can you, can you hear me in the back? Thumbs up. Great. So uh, thank you, Elizabeth and Dr. For the introduction and thank you for welcoming me here today and last night enjoying your wonderful fine fare uh, at local restaurants I really enjoyed that um, I am lo locally based in Boston and currently I act as the director of global disaster response at Massachusetts General Hospital it's my dream job uh, I get to help people uh, provide a professional response to those affected by disasters and crises around the world. Um, and I've got a lot of titles, and I'm very proud and honored to be here today, but I have to say I probably got here because I failed so miserably at my job before this. So this is not an M&M, &M, <laughs> but uh, I have to say that my success, what appears to be success, grew out of probably some of the worst things that people have done, myself included. And so I'm proud to be here today, but also recognize that I want to learn from what I've done wrong and to share with you so that you might remember and think about it in the future and help avoid some of those big mistakes and royal messes that I've made to get to this point today. So. How many of you here have responded to a disaster? Good. And I think I've talked about Haiti a little bit. Can you let me know what other kinds of disasters that you've responded to? Nepal, uh, earthquake, uh, Pakistan, uh, the, the Kashmir earthquakes, the floods, the 
everything in Pakistan is a disaster. <laughs> uh, great, so we've had a little bit of response to disasters. And you know, disasters can be local. So I'm an emergency medicine physician. I work in the emergency department at Mass General, and I've worked at, in Boston for the last 20 years. And we've got disasters every day, uh, it seems like, when our resources are not meeting our needs. But it's the disasters around the world that increasingly are becoming more and more visible, as well as affecting many hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So uh, I have no disclosures. I am currently no longer being paid by International Medical Corps, so I can um, uh, endorse or not endorse as I go, I guess. Um, but uh, today, I guess the objectives I'd love for you to really understand is a little bit about global disasters, but also how you respond. And I know I've got some seasoned veterans uh, for a response in the audience, but thinking about responding to a disaster, um, it will happen in your future, whether it's a local disaster or something more far-reaching like the Syrian crisis, the Chilean earthquake, or the coup in Burkina Faso, which are some of the news that you probably listen to on NPR on your nice drive to work or bike if you're able to. And I'd also like you to take away from here what you might do should a disaster happen and how you might respond both as an individual and as an institution and respond in the right way for the right people at the right time. And I think in that way we can learn from our mistakes. So Haiti. So I'd like to go back to Haiti. 2010, because between now and 2010, a lot of things have happened because of Haiti and because of Pakistan, that the response, as well intended as it was, there were some very bad things that happened by some very good people. And I think that learning from this, um, sending large Western medical teams in, in, in large numbers without support for food, water, shelter, uh, devastated many, including those workers, uh, and hurt them. I myself responded to Haiti. I was on the ground within 48 hours and ended up in Port-au-Prince at the UN Log Base Field Hospital. I left that UN Field-Based Hospital about five, six days later I had suffered heat stroke. I physically prevented surgeons from, from, from doing amputations on non-anesthetized children and adults in non-operative settings. And I evacuated because I thought I could not help. I had fallen victim to heat stroke. I had had surgeons threatening me, but that's not new. I mean, I'm at Harvard, you know, you guys are here, you know what it is. <laughs> um, and I had gotten on a plane with two other people, one from Partners in Health and another colleague from Brigham Women's Hospital, and we were little prepared to be self-reliant for what needed to happen. But during that plane ride out of Port-au-Prince, I got a text from a man whom I had worked with at Harvard and continues to work uh, throughout the Dominican and uh, Latina uh, Florida regions, um, who texted me and asked me to be a field commander for a hospital that needed to be set up at the border in Haiti to receive all the Dominicans uh, treated, Dominican treated Haitians because the Dominicans, as amazingly as they opened their borders, were very quickly wanting to get all the Haitians back to Haiti. And the border general and the UN generals and the US embassy were very interested in the border between Dominican Republic and Haiti because they were fearing a massive migration of Haitians from Port-au-Prince. It was the closest border to Dominican. And they feared this, so they wanted to set up a field hospital there. So I started and built and set up a field hospital and closed it down five months later. We'll talk a little bit about that. So for Haiti, I had responders here. Were you ready to volunteer? And what did your institution do? I learned last night 
John about the amazing effort that was done, the supplies, the people that went at the drop of a hat, the people who back supported them, the institution who supported them, the, 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 the Learjet, the, everything that you were able to do. Uh, and it sounds like there's some longevity that there are still some long-standing deep programs that have lasted because of that initial amazing, compelling, uh, altruistic work that was done. And when I say I failed, I felt failure when I left Haiti to turn around and come back. And I felt compelled and stayed there for five straight months at the cost, great cost to my family and to my job. And when I came back, I had to work every shift, every call, um, and every responsibility that I had missed during those five months. And that was an undue burden on myself as well. But that is an individual. Um, I needed to survive that. And then by surviving and reflecting on what had happened and striving so that this shouldn't happen to others, this job came up called Director of Global Disaster Response at a great hospital. And they also had suffered from Haiti. They had emptied out their ORs. They had no X-Fix devices anywhere left in the hospital. They had no surgeons because of all the compelling volunteerism that spontaneous deployment happened. And Mass General didn't want to see that happen again. So they hired me to be able to do it at Mass General. Mass General is now about 24,000 employees and part of Partners Healthcare, which is over 60,000 employees. And there's a lot of people who want to help in disasters. So it's about coordinating that. I met Valdine in our hospital in Bonne Parisienne, which is the field hospital we set up. And as you can see from this picture, she's about five. She's had an amputation. She has wound care. She has a mattress. She's in a tent. She has a warm plate of food, which is rice and beans, which is much preferred to MREs or meals ready to eat. And she's got a doll. Her hair is done. She's in shock still. Very sad. It took a while for her to smile. How do I care for her when I'm a doctor in clinical practice? How do I ensure that not only is her wound cared for, but the stuff that's around this? How do I ensure that? This is her about a month and a half later. And what do you notice about the movie picture? She's got pediatric crutches, which uh, you've been to Haiti. Um, hard to find. You also have uh, tents in orderly fashion. You actually get a glimpse of some of the chemical latrines in the back. So it's about where to go to the bathroom and where not to go to the bathroom. It's about open spaces. It's about safe places for kids. Um, it's about her being confident. It's about wound healing in a dirt tent field hospital. And it's about the interpreters and making sure that we had cultural ambassadors to make sure that Valdine uh, was understood and she was understanding her direction. She had fallen the day before, so I was a little bit hesitant at first. The blue tarp in the background is a, a gathering place that we would have um, community gatherings and bring on out those people who couldn't walk. The tent is a child-friendly space for world vision. And you can see the picture of Valdine on your right. This is about uh, a year and a half ago. She's standing in front of a house that was built for her and her family. And you cannot tell that she has a prosthetic but she's getting prosthetics fitted for her as she grows. So how do you make this happen? How do you, as a provider who wants to help in a disaster, avoid just worrying about that wound and the medical care you can provide, but make sure that she has the whole entire picture around her, the structure, the logistics? I'm fond of saying that the last person I need in a disaster because they're so high maintenance is a doctor, because we need stuff, right? We need, we need ORs, we need, uh, 
pharmacies we need nurses, most of our responses, 80% of our responses are about nursing. And so uh, nursing is tremendous here. Um, she asked me uh, when her mom texted me to uh, get her a DVD player. I reminded her that although she has a house, she still does not have electricity. So I had to sit back a bit there. So we can adhere to international standards and best practices. We can avoid, this is the field hospital when I first came to it, in the field. Uh, no Haitians would stay in houses. Um, this is what our field hospital looked from above. We had water, we had food, we had places to go to the bathroom. We had 125 Haitian staff that we hired five days after the earthquake and kept them hired for five months and paid them in cash. We had Boy and Girl Scouts helping move patients. We had a security barrier around the entire perimeter, which is very important. And I had one of the best security guards that walked like this. Because he had about three machetes stuck to the inside and outside of this leg, because he was right-handed, and uh, he kept very close guard of many things. All right, so that was my view of the Haiti experience. There are minimum standards that exist, and from Haiti, the errors, the unaccountable practice, the 80% of responders under 30 years old, zero disaster experience. The rates of PTSD, both in humanitarian workers and in Haitians, unbelievable. How do we avoid this in the future? Because the future of disasters is a growth industry in terms of humanitarian work. This slide is meant for you not to see any numbers. If you can't read it, you can look at the slides later. But this shows the trends of natural disasters over the last 100 years. This is the black line going from left to right. So as you can see, even excusing our ability to make better record of what disasters are, they are on the rise for many reasons. The good message on this slide is the red line, and that is mortality. Death rates due to natural disasters are actually diminishing. Okay, That's fantastic. That's about building codes. It's about preparedness. It's about tsunami early warnings. This is, this is wonderful. This is why we're in medicine. This is why we do public health. But the startling number and the startling trend that you need to take away from this slide is the blue one, which is the numbers of people affected by disasters. So we are no longer dying from disasters. We are living through disasters. And those that live through disasters need our help even more. So the sudden onset of the disaster causes certain morbidity and mortality, but it's the onward effects that we need to think about, that your body doesn't necessarily need to be there in the first 24 hours, perhaps in the next phase plan, so that you are protected and you have food and water yourself and a medical evacuation plan, should you need it, to care for others. We can predict our needs in disasters. We can predict that with earthquakes, we will anticipate a high clinical need requiring complex injuries, requiring complex treatment. The wound care, we worked very closely with Operation Smile, who changed their mandate from cleft palate repair to wound and plastic care with orthopedic and uh, plastic surgeons. We can predict that the health structures will be damaged, so we know that foreign medical teams and foreign field hospitals can be accepted and put in ways uh, that are acceptable and not overwhelming the local system. And we also know that with disasters, the burden of disease from a sudden onset crisis happens right away. That if you can't get there right at the beginning to help with this comp these highly complex disaster injuries, like crush injuries, that if you cannot establish care right away, you know the untoward effects will be long-lasting. I call disaster response the gateway drug to global health. Because if you can get there, and the Israeli uh, field hospitals are probably tantamount to the best responders in the world to getting to the crisis. Um, they did it for Nepal. Uh, they did it in uh, Haiti. They did it uh, for uh, Indonesia. They did it for the Philippines. They can get there. They stay for about 10 days, and then they go. And they, they 
our goal is with foreign medical teams is to work alongside the Minister of Health and the military should that be required to make sure that this is dealt with right away. But you can see the ongoing trends is that it becomes a public health crisis, an ongoing chronic care um, becoming quite the issue. Now Ebola was one of those crises that we talk about that wasn't so sudden, but certainly the long-lasting effects and your ability to work and to deal with public health effects of disease and lack of resources in long-term uh, poverty settings, this is where you can make an impact as well. This slide, I wanted to show you um, uh, uh, this comparison of recent sudden onset disasters in time to foreign field hospital arrival. Basically, the uh, bottom is days after the sudden onset disaster, and to the left is the number of beds going up to about 3,000. The dark line is the number of uh, foreign field hospital beds available and uh, in Haiti after the crisis. The other lines are BAM, Iran earthquake, the Indonesian uh, ocean tsunami in Aceh 2004, and Kashmir earthquake. But you can see this dark line. Why were there so many more beds available, although not nearly sufficient for what was needed in Haiti? It's close. Yeah. You had, I had, I had massage therapists from Duluth showing up at my door, Minnesota. I'm like, great, <laughs> go to it. But you know, you could get there, and everybody did. Um, I saw the same thing in Katrina. I worked for the American Red Cross in, uh, uh, in New Orleans and Baton Rouge uh, doing the public health response. And I had doctors and nurses who had driven all the way from Seattle and showing up, and I said, great, are you licensed to practice in the state of Louisiana? No, I'm like, there's some boxes. Come on, you know. And I, you know, you wouldn't go into Boston and practice medicine or write prescriptions, unless you have your federal DEA, of course. But you know, we have to play by the rules here. Um, this was close, and we had a lot of people practicing that maybe shouldn't have been practicing in these settings. Come on in. So the future of disasters, we said that natural disasters are on the rise, but we also know, and certainly today with Syrian uh, refugee crisis throughout Europe, is that unconventional wars are going to force people to move. And when you move and you are displaced from your home, whether you cross international border or not, you are at higher risk of dying no matter who you are. Those that move, those that are displaced are more likely to be women and children. And your crude mortality rate, which is called the vital sign of disaster response and humanitarian crisis, you have 60 to 80 times increased crude mortality rate because you are displaced. And this is dying from simple things like diarrhea, upper respiratory infections, and dehydration. Simple. We also know about urbanization, uh, Mexico City, uh, um, Dhaka, Bangladesh, these massive cities, uh, India, Mumbai, um, and this will also contribute to this, lack of communication, organization, infrastructure. We also know that these major weather-related events, such as what we're seeing throughout uh, the Sahel region in Africa, making everyone uh, migrate um, to get to resources. We also know this increased threat of nuclear, as well as epidemic events. Uh, we went through Ebola, but we're looking at the next one. And I hear there's six cases of flu already in your fine state. So we recognize that there's a problem of unacceptable practice, that our current guidelines for foreign medical teams are limited in scope. And so out of this grew a greater accountability and a solution towards this. And this is where the meat of the talk is, is that we can improve this. We can require standards. We can require that you have a certain set of competencies before you participate in disasters, before your team is accepted at a border. Um, you might be stopped if your team flies without being coordinated through the Global Health Cluster Foreign Medical Team classification. This happened in Nepal. There's a standard, this is uh, located, uh, the Global Health Cluster is part of a organizing body for the cluster system for the UN, which is like kind of like the FEMA ERFs, shelter, food, water. And the health cluster is led by the World Health Organization and they came up with the guidelines for foreign medical teams and disasters, which grew out of Haiti and Pakistan. 
And this classification is very important. And in Nepal, what happened was many teams wanted to go, and they went through the coordinator, and the coordinator said, don't come. We have enough. We have Chinese military. We have Indian military. We have Nepal, Nepali military. We have field hospitals. We don't need you. So we've had surgeons and surgical teams from America come land in the airport, stay for three days, and leave. There's nothing for them to do. And um, you want to be useful, but you also, we strive for this um, communication coordination. So it's being part of this. There's now an international registry, which is live, that requires registration of your foreign medical team. As an academic center, it's a challenge but coordinating and partnering with international aid organizations who are known and respected in the humanitarian response um, environment are the ways that US teams probably is the wave of the future. In the UK, there's a national health service that allows leave, and they have a national registry for uh, folks to go. So the Sierra Leonean response actually had coordination with the national health service in the UK. Registered, re registered teams and individuals who go to help out with Sierra Leone because of the long tradition there. Liberia was a little bit more of a mishmash. So Ebola happened. So I know Elizabeth was part of Ebola, but all of you um, probably went through some kind of training. <laughs> Should you encounter someone with concerning travel history and symptoms? Um, I, Raise your hands if you've had this. Um, and uh, what was amazing to me was to go through the PPE of my hospital and know what was required in the field. And it was really nice to have the PAPRs, which are like the uh, spacesuit kind of, if I have an air conditioner thing back here, and wishing I could have had that for many of my uh, teams in the very, very hot areas in uh, Sierra Leone and in um, Liberia. So why was Ebola so bad in terms of healthcare workers. Because of quarantine, people were not ready to go. Would you repeat that? So when you came back, there was a stringent quarantine. There was a quarantine. So yes, the borders were closed. So that was hard for international workers to come in. What about the baseline healthcare worker status in West Africa? Bad good. <laughs> Double down thumb sign. So we knew that in West Africa, for example, in Liberia, um, according to the workforce uh, millennium development goals, is that the critical threshold for resource poor settings is 2.3 doctors, nurses, and midwives. That's all together. 2.3 for 1,000 population. And when you look at a place like Liberia, when you have 0.04 <coughs> plus 0.2, we're not there. That's before Ebola. And then what happened? We talked about quarantine. What happened with the workers? <coughs> they got infected. Why did they get infected? Poor occupational medicine practice. He's not a plant, right? We didn't talk about this, but yes. So infection, protection, and control. Don't get the disease, and don't give it to someone else. Simple to think about, but hard to affect. When you're working 20-hour days, because your colleagues have died, when you don't have gloves, and you have no ability to isolate, and you have no ability to transfer or send anyone, should you suspect any of this. So you will stick yourself with a needle, or you will touch your face with body fluids, not even thinking about it, and you will die from this. There was a disproportionate illness and death among healthcare workers. This represents the, the orange line is the case fatality rates early September of 2014 for the overall population. The blue line represents the case fatality rates for healthcare workers. This includes doctors, nurses, support staff. 
this is an epidemic nightmare because if you don't have doctors and nurses, this then will start to rise again. So we talked about a little bit about why the, the greatest risk of dying. But one of the important things was certainly where Elizabeth and, and uh, International Medical Corps really want to focus was on the training. So those that survived was making sure that they had the tools about basic infection protection and control. And this needed to be communicated at all levels, to the hygienists, to the guys who just washed down ambulances, who would go to villages. All this needed to be communicated. So training was essential. And certainly one of the biggest things I want to emphasize today. So you're an institution. You've got these amazing specialists and practitioners and nurses and students and fellows who want to go help. I have to say that sitting at Mass General, my boss is a nurse. And when Ebola broke out, she says, I'm not sending my nurses there. I don't want my nurses to die. And her simple, very normal reaction was mirrored everywhere across the states and internationally. We couldn't find people to go. We could find people to go to Gaza before we could get people to go to West Africa. But those people that ultimately went to West Africa, we ensured as best we could that they were supported. At Mass General, though, anybody who wanted to go, uh, I, it had to be a case-by-case -case basis. I was the person responsible for making sure that that person was brief, but the institution was brief, that they had insurance, that they had coverage while they were gone. So one of my nurses who went to work with International Medical Corps in Sierra Leone, um, I had to, she had to take a leave of absence. Well, she was asking to take a leave of absence because my chief nurse was like, we can't send her. I said, but she wants to go. She's going to quit. Well, we can't have her quit. How do we support her, Hillary? How do we make sure that she's as safe as she can possibly be? But she was also asking me from the institutional side. Because if you send someone to West Africa and they get infected with Ebola and they come back to your institution, your numbers might drift down a bit. We saw that in New York with uh, an amazing guy who went and worked with MSF who ended up getting Ebola and going to you know, get on the subway and horribly sensationalized. But he was smart. He did the right thing. Um, but nobody believed him. Um, not in the public sense. So how do we do this? How do I ensure that this person comes back whole and then can do their job again? I liken a healthcare worker to how the military looks at fighter pilots. When a fighter pilot gets in trouble, you ditch the billion dollar plane and you get that fighter pilot back. That's what we do. We care for our providers, okay? It's really hard to replace a doctor. It's really hard to replace a nurse, a chief nurse, anybody who goes, okay? And it's not just about that, it's their family you, you or must care for. There is all these downward effects that you need to think about. How do you care for this person? How do you prepare them to go? How do you help them during the response? Elizabeth talked about the phone calls. I was like, of course I'll answer the phone. You know, what can I do? I can't do anything else. You know, it's 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 what I want I would do to help you. But the same was said for anybody there. We couldn't nobody could get medically evacuated if you got appendicitis or you broke your leg or got in a car accident, which is much more likely than actually contracting Ebola. There's no ability to evacuate you. None of the medical evacuation insurance programs would cover you. We had to get a special, we had to get special uh, planes that were bought, and they promised these planes to us that we'd be able to evacuate our citizens. And then the plane gets taken out, because you have to decontaminate the plane before the pilot will get back into it. And then after the deployment, my nurse came back, quarantined, home isolation, um, as was what we discussed with the Boston Public Health Commission about how to manage her. Um, 
watching her symptoms. The first day that she came back, 21 days after, totally broadcast, uh, all the other nurses um, on her entire locker area moved out. This hero who selflessly went for nine weeks beyond, who worked day in and day out to help those suffering, came back and educated, smart people couldn't, couldn't welcome her. They were not comfortable. How much did it cost to send a nurse for nine weeks and to replace her on her ER shifts? So I deployed with International Medical Corps for six months. Um, and I work as an emergency medicine attending, and I every shift, so basically it's about $500 an hour to replace me, according to my chief. I was like, ooh, I'd like to see that paycheck. <laughs> um, so I had to cover all of my shifts for six months and negotiate that and protect that so that I could come down to DC and work with the teams down there and make sure that they were being deployed. And make sure that the Boston Public Health Commission, we had actually run a tabletop with Ebola because um, we had dealt with Ebola in um, uh, August of 2012. We had a case at our hospital that we work in um, Mbarara, which is kind of the south um, west corner, close to, uh, very close, uh, Mbarara to Kigali is about a uh, four hour drive, including the border. Um, so we were very close, but we knew that uh, our staff were there and students and nurses working in that hospital with a quote Ebola case. So we had run through what had happened with that case. We had helped um, uh, with MSF's response and set up a whole Ebola clinic in an old TV ward and um, uh, made sure that everybody understood this. And the Ugandans are amazing. They've dealt they deal with Ebola all the time. So they knew how to deal with the basic infection protection and control. And the Ugandans and the um, uh, Congolese were some of the best trainers that we had because they could, they've been through this and they know how to do a little resource infection protection and control. And then we had a Marburg outbreak. And we had to work with the Boston Public Health Commission about uh, the uh, OBGYN resident who had cared for the signal, signal case, who got on a plane and just came home. I knew where he was, though, because uh, at Partners, we have a travel-safe uh, tracking that we know where all of our employees are <coughs> travel register. Um, so I know where they are. And I think it's a great benefit and something that you think about it in terms of institution when crisis happens. And you cannot diminish that reputation uh, impact that reputational impact in terms of global disaster response. Sure, it's great to get the picture of the goods, of the service that you're providing, and write about it in the papers, and get on NPR, and I've been on BBC and CNN, and all these other things, and it's great for visibility, it's great for getting programs recognized, it's great for really ultimately helping those that you're wishing to serve. So I'm all about it. You know, I've definitely hugged missionaries on evangelical television just because that was who was interested in seeing what was going on. And I absolutely would ask anybody for money when it comes to making sure that money gets to the beneficiaries. So all these things need to be considered uh, when you consider your institution. How can you reduce that risk to you? Well, you have to be informed. Just like any procedure that you do, you have to be informed about your risks and benefits about what this might mean should you get Ebola. Should you get injured in an earthquake because you're not camping, you camped too close to a building that then had an aftershock, and then you got crushed? How do I evacuate you? How do you know how to get it? Who's handling the evacuation? Um, who here are medical students or fellows? It's okay. You're you're the future, but. Um, Taking a medical student into a disaster, an ongoing current disaster, is highly, uh, I would highly discourage it unless that person had special set of skills and competencies, like language, culture, etc. And they will not be practicing medicine. 
you'll be carrying boxes and helping unless you are supervised by an attending physician because that's the standard that we have for our patients here in the United States. That is the standard that we would expect anywhere in the world. But if you're a medical student who's from Mexico or some other place and you're the only medical person there, how do I support you? Because you will get injured or you will do something or perform a surgery that maybe you had no business doing and you'll have to live with those consequences. How do I support you if you've made bad decisions? First of all, maybe I won't send you, <laughs> but second of all, how do, how do I support you so that you don't stop your career? Because you're our future fighter pilots. I want to make sure that your medical coverage <laughs> covers you should you contract a disease or get injured. Disability. And then how do I assist you in the field? When you come back, how do I screen you? How do I make sure that you have a thermometer at home? Food, takeout, or if you're remote and I can send you to New Hampshire and be in a mountain somewhere, I will do this. And, and Elizabeth and I had talked about this as a possibility for some folks. And how do I make you ready? So I think this is where uh, the future is. And that is, there's training that you can get to be a professional humanitarian provider. So just like you've gone through your training to get to this point in your career, there are guidelines and standards that you should go through for a response. I want you to understand the actors who are on the ground when you're there. Okay, You're going to be in a tent, and there are going to be tons of other people around, other organizations and militaries and um, government officials and uh, very well-meaning um, massage therapists from Duluth. You're going to have to try to figure out and navigate that and you can get that education, much like you would get through law or through medicine. You can go through trainings online, you can go through certification process, you can go through simulations. And most importantly, what you'll learn is that you're going, but most likely, 90% of your time is not about being that care provider, that primary physician or primary nurse. It's about the management of the logistics around it. So in the morning you might be uh, seeing a patient, but in the afternoon you, you might be digging latrines. And it's not hard, but you have to know how to do it and what are the standards. And you can get this training. And these competencies, this, it's not just about the knowledge, but how to use these competencies, how to act under stress. Uh, we deal with it in our daily lives, but it's not until you get 72 hours without any sleep and surgeons screaming at the top of their lungs at you that you really know about your breaking point. And why should it be there in the middle of a disaster? You should know what you can handle before you get there. And this is where simulation and learning, safer learning environments can happen before this. So this is Rodney. He lifts heavy things. <laughs> I met Rodney in Haiti. He said, hey, how can I help? I said, how can you help? And I said, well, what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm the, I just left the Super Bowl, and I think it was in Louisiana. And I'm the chief logistician. I'm like, what are they going to do? <laughs> All those people. They need beer. And he goes, no, 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 I'm here to help. I'm like, OK, what can you do? He's like, let's have anything. So I'm like, great. Good. He goes, have anything. The other thing he did was carry around a lot of fencing materials. He made a lot of fences. But Rodney was humble. He didn't. He he came down from like the top. If you're a football fan, seriously, I'm like that's the guy you want to know. Um, top level job to serve, and ended up somehow in my backyard in Haiti, and he was willing to do things. And he served every day. And he smiled, and that was brilliant. And I ask you, regardless of how you got there, maybe you'll get there. Maybe you'll have the skills. But this flexibility, this ability to accept lack of control when you're an obsessive-compulsive uh, Asperger-like person in the medical field, like all of us sometimes tend to be, um, it's really understanding this and keeping an open mind and recognizing in yourself when you are stressful and in others and how to reduce that. And specifically for our trainees, we really do have to think about how they would practice. And you know what? I, 
they're great. I mean, you guys, the trainees have so much energy, enthusiasm, uh, ability to stay up at night with amazing amounts of caffeine, um, to get through studying and going through all these things and writing all these charts. But you know what? They're so good helping out the prep work. Like I had, I had some medical students like printing out amazing spreadsheets everywhere, and they were helping. Not in the ways that they thought. It helped them learn in that process. And I encourage you getting involved in the logistics of setting up because. 10% of the work is a sexy disaster response, 90% is a preparedness. So you can have a role. But just in the field, without supervision, we don't want you practicing C-sections on uh, patients if that is not your expertise. But it can happen. I know how to do C-sections because a pediatrician taught me when I was working on a mission hospital in Malawi. But I had to go through 10. I, I taught him how to do ultrasounds. So. It's important. To professionalize humanitarian workers means to protect the trainees, but also protect the beneficiaries and do no harm. So these guidelines that I talked about that are now actually in effect, this is a sign at the um, uh, Cebu airport in uh, Rojas, uh, the Cebu Islands in uh, the Philippines. And this was, hey, you're a worker, you showed up, you have to register. And if you don't register, you got to go. <coughs> so the future of disaster response at your institution is that you can have you have a roster of people that you know who you're going to call at 3 a.m., but you can maintain this roster and get involvement and get them trained. And you can establish partnerships. You can have success. AK is an OBGYN. I don't know if you can tell or not, but this guy is a guy. <laughs> AK is great. She's using our ultrasound and helping out with general clinical practice. There's no baby. She's amazing. And she's representative of someone. And she's also training our uh, Filipino ambassadors about ultrasound and enhancing that capacity. So. I started out by letting you know that I failed miserably. But out of that failure has grown success for me individually, but I think also as a profession, that helping you, helping your institution have this approach, I think will be tremendous for the institution, for the individual, and those you seek to serve in a professional capacity. Thank you very much. talk that was both, I think, sobering and inspirational. I'm sure we have many questions. Uh, who would like to start? So uh, we have, John uh, Butterly has been very involved in this, and uh, put together an approach that does people who do not take the medicine protector, certainly, some preparation before they go for sanctioned events. And we kind of know where people are. When, they, when this is sanctioned by Dartmouth But of course, there are people who go uh, that we don't know about. And so I'm just curious how you manage that. You said you had a travel safe uh, uh, program, if you will, that, to try to know where people are. But the question is, is how do you deal with all the people who actually haven't been trained and sanctioned, et cetera, et cetera? So to repeat the question, that how do you deal with when you have a sanctioned event and you pick, you have your team that's sanctioned, and then you have your spontaneous volunteers who go? Um, Mass General fired a resident who spontaneously deployed. Um, you have to have accountability for this. And I think from the top down, people want to help and are compelled to help. But if you show up spontaneously to a crisis without food, without water, without protection, the chances of you getting injured or having ill consequences or only being there for three days, and you want to avoid the disaster tourism, number one. How do you do it on an operational basis? Well, number one, um, it's a little bit of a push and a pull. You have feelers out there for people who might go. You have feelers out there for people who are already there. Um, so this is part of this Travel Safe uh, program, iJet, uh, WorldQ, that everybody who um, 
books a flight through our preferred vendors, gets automatically logged in. If they don't use a preferred vendor, um, uh, we can sometimes track them down through word of mouth, but oftentimes they'll have gone to the travel clinic or they'll have gone to occupational health to get vaccines <coughs> or things, and we all talk. So that's one way. So you can have a little bit of a monitoring way system to do that. For the Nepal earthquake, we had 10 staff partners on the ground and found them all within three hours um, uh, that had been affected and not affected by the earthquake. But we found all 10 individuals and we were able to arrange evacuation plans, et cetera. So it was a little bit of a push-pull. Um, so the, answer, the half answer to unsanctioned people is you have a little bit of a um, surveillance uh, mechanism in place. Um, and we have a very good relationship with our travel clinic and our occupational health department to make sure that if people are going, we know about them. And partners is big, but we can figure things out. We also know through relationships and partnerships with NGOs, like Partners in Health, International Medical Corps, uh, Project Hope, that folks will sign up for them. And then they'll come back to me and go, hey, do you know about this person? And we've done that. In fact, um, before people are part of the roster, I actually get permission from their uh, clinical unit supervisors or their department chiefs so that they know that they're on the team. So we already have a communication uh, going, and they should feel comfortable to call me. Uh, this person, I think, is gone. Like, that's a little bit of uh, telling, but it's good. I mean, it's this communication. The other way, you know, sanctioned versus unsanctioned is getting the information out soon about what is sanctioned and what is not sanctioned. And that our messaging at Mass General and at Partners is, this is a very volatile, so Volo is one of them. If you hear of anybody traveling or you have family members, please contact us. We, we want to help you. So for Ebola, we knew that we had a lot of West Africans who wanted to help and who, who went, who were employees, had nothing to do with healthcare. It was about their families. So we were able to help them as well. So it was messaging uh, around it and, and clicking on a button saying, have you heard? And messaging coming out from leadership down about the consequences should you spontaneously deploy and need evacuation, we can't provide it. You're at great risk. And we also put out um, messaging around this is not sanctioned. This is the consequences of you going and deploying to a place are, are severe. In fact, if you get medically injured, we can't get you. Please let us know. Let's arrange something. So it was more of a not punishment, but carrot of we want to help. And that was a way that we were able to do it, particularly with Ebola. And then with Nepal, we had so many different people who were involved uh, with wilderness medicine, et cetera, that it was really kind of a calling and making sure that we had everybody identified. That answer? And this is an example. I'd, I'd love to give you this card, but it's, it's one really great way that I think is a good investment from the university and institution way to do it. Lisa. Thank you, Hillary, for sharing You're welcome, Lisa. insights and uh, vast experience and for, and for your candor, too, in talking about what you consider to be the challenges or, or failures, because I think we do that too infrequently in this work. Um, I have two questions. The first is, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the dealing with the re-entry of your healthcare workers. I mean, you mentioned that one nurse who is ostracized by her coworker so unfairly, but also just how you help people reintegrate to life and deal with some of the emotional burden and traumas that they've witnessed and from having just dealt with really traumatic situations to then having to cope with life and everyone around them who's dealing with just what we call our first world problems and which may seem very insignificant in comparison. And then the second question is whether you are aware of any programs um, to do sort of analogous support for the local healthcare workers. So programs that not just will keep local healthcare workers alive, which is obviously the first um, and most important step, but programs that are really aimed at helping them deal with what they're witnessing and experiencing um, and helping them cope. And obviously that's probably done best locally by um, those from within the culture, but in, in cultures where that's not been um, a traditionally uh, developed area. Um, so I'm wondering if you are aware of any efforts to help counterparts. So this comes very close to my heart. I suffered from PTSD after Haiti, um, which may be obvious to some, um, not to others, but and that took me a while to recover. My resources, uh, I got a phone call left on, I got a voice message from our employee assistance services after Haiti saying, hey, if you need some help, give us a call. 
Um, so I come from an area of completely getting how someone needs to be supported when they come back and recognizing that it by no means there's a perfect way to do it. So for our first world responders who come back, yes, the deep uh, loss that you will feel after you come back from having to take up all your vacation time and then have to work full time and you come back and nobody's getting it that you were, you know, pooping in a bowl and drinking out of another one. Like people don't get it and you're in this kind of shock. Um, yes, that's one thing. We uh, mandatorily make every single person uh, go through a debriefing process. It's not a critical incident stress debrief. It is just team comes together. We talk about the operational things. To this, we invite openly, widely, our employee assistance services who leave their cards, let, let it know it's available, etc. I have individual debriefs with each and every member of my teams that deploy. Um, that even if they're 15 minutes or coffee, it's just you got you, you got the time, talk about it. And I always make that available because it's, you know, it really is important to have that connection. And if I said you don't feel comfortable with me, I've got a deputy, you know, I've got this, or whatever. So those are the things that I try to do. Um, but we also recognize from others, um, hey, I think so-and-so is having problems. So how do we reach out in a private and supportive way? For our healthcare workers who are on the ground, we are horrible at that. Um, one way that uh, we found uh, for our healthcare workers and for our beneficiaries in Haiti was allowing church in the field hospital. Um, and we're always, no, no, cannot put church and field hospital in the same place. This is not humanitarian and impartial. I'm like, yeah, but it's Haiti. 99.99% of Haitians are actually Christian and some other stuff. But this is how they were able to help. And I was witnessing the, every, the kids standing up and saying, you know, I, I survived, and I'm here to celebrate this. So allow, and like I would never have said, we have to have church on a humanitarian mission compound, and my, my people from MSF are going, oh, it's just so not control, and I'm like, oh, but it's okay, you know, because like, that's what they wanted. So you have to learn, and we can't necessarily impose on what they need. And the last way to answer it is, um, professionalizing humanitarian healthcare workers isn't just about us being professional. It's about the workers that we're training, that they get certificates and badges and recognition and value for what they do on the ground, because they're the, they're the first responders. So how do we do that? And how do we make these programs online and on their cell phones, and they get a certificate, and you know, they can show the certificate to an NGO and get a job? You know, that would be great. That's what we hope for. We have time for one more question. Hillary, thank you so much for this uh, really interesting taking this complex problem and really giving us a great view of it. And you kind of answered this when you talked about church and the field hospital. And all of our local health efforts have tried very hard to bring uh, cultural sensitivity to the poor. It's got to be more difficult in disaster relief. I don't have that experience. Could you expand on that? So um, we, affectionately known as Mazungas in most of Africa, we white people. And it doesn't matter about the color of your skin. You are not from there. In uh, Haiti, you're called blanc. And you can be very dark, and you're still called white. Um, paternalistic uh, Livingstonian methods, missionary work, still work a lot in the rest of the world in terms of how agencies work. It doesn't say it's right. Um, but if you have someone who understands the culture, the language, you make huge strides that make such an impact for the beneficiary population. You have to have that interpreter, that translator, that ambassador that culturally helps you on the ground because there's no way your briefing will get you 100% up to speed as to when you hit the ground in terms of what is culturally appropriate, inappropriate, et cetera, et cetera. But Making sure that every single one of your teens has someone who has um, a language or a cultural experience with those that you're seeking to serve has been one of the most valuable things that we have the advantage of being 60,000 strong to find a, uh, a Filipino dialect from the island of Cebu uh, pharmacist. You know, like. Where did this person come from? And so, and that community is quite large. You know, it's amazing. So having that is good. Um, 
I'll make a little plug for an organization called InMed, International Institute for Medicine. They have online courses for uh, deployment, um, and they have a huge section on cultural sensitivity. That you know, you could sit in your office for 20 hours straight to talk about cultural sensitivity, but it won't get across necessarily, and you don't have the time. But these online programs are ways that you can get your students involved in it, and that you might mandate for your own teams. And we can talk more offline about some of those programs that are available, but um, there's some good ones, and, and I think uh, we'll help with that. The other is um, having uh, public forums, because believe it or not, all amazing people in the world end up in your communities, and reaching out to the local diaspora uh, to help you for your teams uh, is also a tremendous thing you can do, both in the briefing phase and the debriefing phase. Thank you so much. Thank you.